Chapter 8, Part 1 of A Narrative of a Revolutionary Soldier by Joseph Plum Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Campaign of 1782, Part 1 A man with morbid pains oppressed, who feels the nightmare in his breast, rejoices when the pressure's o'er, and the distress is felt no more. So war and tumults, when they cease, bring comfort in the thoughts of peace. The arm of British power in America, being dislocated by the capture of Lord Cornwallis and his mire middens, we had not much to disturb us on account of the enemy. I fared rather better than I did when I was here on my journey to Mud Island in 1777. Our duty was not very hard, but I was a soldier yet, and had to submit to soldiers' rules and discipline, and soldiers' fare. Either here or just before our officers had enlisted a recruit. He had lately been discharged from the New Jersey line. After enlisting with us, he obtained a furlough to visit his friends, but receiving no money when he engaged with us, which was, I believe, the sole motive of his entering the service at the time, and obtaining his ends in getting home, he took especial care to keep himself there, at least till he could get another opportunity to try his luck again, which he accordingly did, by enlisting in a corps of new levies in his own state, New Jersey. My captain, hearing where he was and how engaged, sent me with two men to find him out and bring him back to his duty. And now, my dear reader, excuse me for being so minute in detailing this little excursion, for it yet seems to my fancy, among the privations of that war, like one of those little verdant plats of ground, amid the burning sands of Arabia so often described by travellers. One of our captains and another of our men, being about going that way on furlough, I and my two men set off with them. We received that day two or three rations of fresh pork and hard bread. We had no cause to call this pork carrion or hog-meat, for on the contrary, it was so fat, and being entirely fresh, we could not eat it at all. The first night of our expedition we boiled our meat, and I asked the landlady for a little sauce. She told me to go to the garden and take as much cabbage as I pleased, and that, boiled with the meat, was all we could eat. The next morning we proceeded. It was cool weather, and about six inches deep of snow on the ground. After two or three days' journeying, we arrived in the neighborhood of the game that we were in pursuit of. It was now sundown, and our furloughed captain and man concluded to stop for the night. Here we fell in with some soldiers of the corps that our man belonged to. Our captain inquired if they knew such a man, naming him. They equivocated and asked many questions concerning our business. Our officious captain answered them so much to their satisfaction that Mr. Deserter took so good care of himself that I could not find him, and I cared but little about it. I knew he would get nothing with us if we caught him but a striped jacket and as we concluded the war was nearly ended, we thought it would be but of little service to him, nor his company any to us. The captain put me and my two men into the open cold kitchen of a house that they said had some time or other been a tavern, but as it was in the vicinity of the place where I passed the winter of 1779-80, I was acquainted with several of the inhabitants of the neighborhood, and accordingly sent one of my men to a house hard by, the master of which I knew to be a fine man, and obtained his leave to lodge there. We had a good warm room to sit and lodge in, and as the next day was Thanksgiving, we had an excellent supper. In the morning, when we were about to proceed on our journey, the man of the house came into the room and put some bread to the fire to toast. He next produced some cider, 
as good and rich as wine, then giving each of us a slice of his toasted bread, he told us to eat it and drink the cider, observing that he had done so for a number of years and found it the best stimulator imaginable. We again prepared to go on, having given up the idea of finding the deserter. Our landlord then told us that we must not leave his house till we had taken breakfast with him. We thought we were very well dealt by already, but concluded not to refuse a good offer. We therefore stayed and had a genuine New Jersey breakfast, consisting of buckwheat slapjacks, flowing with butter and honey, and a capital dish of chocolate. We then went on, determined not to hurry ourselves, so long as the Thanksgiving lasted. We found a good dinner at a farmer's house, but I thought that both the good man and his lady looked at us as if they would have been as well pleased with our room as our company. However, we got our dinner, and that was quite sufficient for us. At night we applied for lodging at a house near the road. There appeared to be none but females in the house, two matronly ladies and two misses. One of the women said she should have no objection to our staying there through the night, were it not that a woman in the house was then lying at the point of death. I had often heard this excuse made before. We readily perceived her drift, and when turning to go away, one of the men told her that he did not wish to stay, for, said he, if old Corpus should chance to come in the dark for the sick woman, he might in his haste mistake and take me. The woman smiled, and we went on. The next house, which looked as if hospitality was an inmate, I applied to and obtained admittance. Here again we found a plenty of Thanksgiving fare. The people of this house were acquainted with numbers of the Connecticut soldiers who had been here during the winter of 79, and made many inquiries respecting them. They seemed to have a particular regard for the Connecticut forces, as that section of the state was originally settled by Connecticut people, and it still retains the name of the Connecticut Farms. The good man of the house would not let us depart in the morning until we had breakfasted. We then bid our kind host farewell, and proceeded on. About noon we called at a house, and while we were warming ourselves in the kitchen and chatting with the young people, the good old housewife came into the room and entered into conversation with us upon the hardships of a soldier's life. She lamented much that we had no mothers nor sisters to take care of us. She said she knew what it was, in a measure, to endure the fatigues and hardships of a camp, by the sufferings her sons had undergone in the drafted militia. They had told her how they had suffered hunger and cold, and to cap all, said she, they came home ragged, dirty, and lousy as beggars. The young men who were present did not seem to relish the latter part of her narrative, for they leered like cross colts. The good woman all the while did not say a word to us about eating, but went off to her room and shut the door. We stayed a few minutes longer, and were just going away, when the old lady opened her door and said, "'Come to your dinners, soldiers,' with as much ease and familiarity as though we had belonged to the family. Agreeably to invitation, we went in and found the master of the house sitting in his elbow-chair by the fire, who gave us a hearty welcome to the remains of his Thanksgiving cheer. We ate a hearty dinner, and an excellent one it was, when after returning them our sincere thanks for their hospitality, we pursued our journey. This afternoon we passed a place where, on our march to Virginia the past summer, a funny incident occurred, which at the time it happened, and at this time, excited considerable merriment. Our captain, who we always took pains to discommode, had placed himself on the top of an old rail fence, during a momentary halt of the troops. The rail upon which he sat was very slender. Behind him was a meadow, and from the fence, for about a rod, was a bank almost perpendicular. 
I was sitting on the other end of the rail when our sergeant major, observing the weakness of the fence, came and seated himself by my side, and given me a hint, we kept wriggling about till we broke the rail and let the captain take his chance down the bank among the bushes, quite to the bottom, taking good care ourselves not to go with him. When he came back he did not look very pleased with his Irish hoist. Whether he mistrusted that we had been the cause of his overturn I do not know. He said but little, whatever he might think. At night we stopped at a large elegant brick house, to which the owner bid us welcome. He told me that his house was Lord Cornwallis's quarters during part of the time he was in the Jerseys, in 76 and 77. He said that Cornwallis was a morose, cross man, always quarrelling with and beating his servants, that he was glad his pride was humbled, but had much rather have heard that he was killed than taken. Here again we regaled ourselves on Thanksgiving viands, which was nearly or quite the last. However, we had fared something better than I did at the rice and vinegar Thanksgiving in Pennsylvania in the year of 1777. We took breakfast here and went on. We, this forenoon, passed through a pretty village called Maidenhead. Don't stare, dear reader, I did not name it. An hour or two before we came to this place, I saw a pretty young lady standing in the door of a house, just by the roadside. I very innocently inquired of her how far it was to Maidenhead. She answered, five miles. One of my men, who, though young, did not stand in very eminent danger of being hanged for his beauty, observed to the young lady that he thought the commodity scarce in the market, since he had to go so far to seek it. Don't trouble yourself, said she. About that there is no danger of its being more scarce on your account. The fellow leered, and, I believe, wished he had held his tongue. The next day we arrived at Trenton, where was a commissary and some public stores. I concluded, although we were in a thanksgiving country, yet, as we should soon be where we should not find so much to be thankful for, that I would endeavour to supply the deficiency in some degree. Accordingly I made out a return for three men for three days' rations. We went to the commissaries, who told us that he had no kind of meat on hand, nor any other provisions but flour, that if we chose to take that, he would allow us a pound and a quarter of flour for a pound of beef. We took it and exchanged it at the baker's, pound for pound, and went on. We arrived at our quarters in Burlington some time in the evening. Soon after this came on my trouble, and that of several others of the men belonging to our corps. Some time in the month of January, two of our men were taken down with a species of yellow fever. One recovered, and the other died. Directly after, one belonging to our room was seized with it and removed to the hospital, where he recovered. Next I was attacked with it. This was in February. It took hold of me in good earnest. I bled violently at the nose, and was so reduced in flesh and strength in a few days that I was helpless as an infant. Oh, how much I suffered! Although I had as good attendance as circumstances would admit. The disorder continued to take hold of our people till there were more than twenty sick with it. Our officers made a hospital in an upper room on one of the wings of the house, and as soon as the men fell sick they were lodged there. About the first of March I began to mend, and recovered what little reason I ever possessed, of which I had been entirely deprived from nearly the first attack of the fever. As soon as I could bear it, I was removed from my room to the hospital among those that were recently taken. For what reason I was put with the sick and dying, I do not know, nor did I ask. I did not care much what they did with me, but nothing ill resulted from it that I know of. The doctor belonging to the artillery regiment, 
who attended upon us, we having no doctor in our corps, went home on furlough, and it was a happy circumstance for us, for he was not the best of physicians. Besides, he was badly provided to do with. The apothecary's stores in the Revolutionary Army were as ill-furnished as any others. The doctor, however, left us under the care of a physician belonging to the city, who was a fine man, and to his efforts, under providence, I verily believe I owed my life. He was a skilful, tender-hearted, and diligent man. There was likewise in the city a widow-woman that rendered us the most essential service during our sickness. As we were unable to eat anything, and had only our rations of beef and bread to subsist upon, this widow, this pitying angel, used almost every evening to send us a little brass kettle, containing about a pail full of posset, consisting of wine, water, sugar, and crackers. Oh, it was delicious, even to our sick palates. I never knew who our kind benefactress was. All I ever knew concerning her was that she was a widow. The neighbors would not tell us who she was, nor where she lived. All that I, or any of the others who had been sick, could learn from them was that she was a very fine, pious soul. Yes, she will be rewarded, where it will be said to her, I was hungry, and you gave me meat. I was sick, and you visited me although she did not visit us personally. She ministered more to our comfort than thousands of idle visits, which are oftener of more detriment to sick people than they are benefit. Four men died in the room into which I was removed after I was carried there. One occurrence, though nothing strange in such circumstances as I was then in, I took notice of, although I could take notice of little else. We lay on sacks filled with straw, and our beds mostly upon the floor, in a rank on each side of the room, with an alley between. The first man that died, after my being conveyed there, was the first in order from the entering door of the room, on the side I lay. Next the fourth man from him died. There was then four men between this last that died and me. In my weakness I felt prepossessed with a notion, that every fourth man would die, and that, consequently, I should escape, as I was the fifth from the one that died last. And just so it happened, the man next to me on the side of those that had died, died next. I believe this circumstance contributed a great deal in retarding my recovery, until the death of this last man, and that after his death, when I thought myself exempted, it helped as much toward my recovery. Such strange whims will often work great effects, both in hindering and forwarding in such cases. When the body is feeble and the head weak, small causes often have great effect upon the sick. I know it by too frequent experience. Eight men died at this time, the rest recovered, though the most of them very slowly. Some were as crazy as coots for weeks after they had gained strength to walk about. My hair came off my head, and I was as bald as an eagle. But after I began to gain strength, I soon got about. But it was a grievous sickness to me, the sorest I had ever undergone. Although death is much nearer to me now than it was then, yet I never had thought myself so near death as I did then. The spring had now began to open, and warm weather soon came on. We remained here till the month of May, when one of our sergeants and myself obtained permission to go down to Philadelphia for a couple of days, to visit some of our acquaintance in that city, but particularly to carry some little clothing to one of our men in the hospital there, who was wounded at the siege of Yorktown, and had had his leg amputated above the knee. I carried him, among other things, a pair of stockings and shoes. His nurse told him that he was more lucky than most other people, for they got one pair of shoes and stockings, he got two. 
Poor fellow! I never saw nor heard of him afterwards. Thus poor soldiers pass out of notice. My comrades and I stayed over two days at Philadelphia, intending to return the next day in the packet. That evening one of our non-commissioned officers came down, who informed us that our corps had marched for Hudson's River, and that our arms and clothing were gone on in the baggage wagons, and that we must immediately follow. We all, however, stayed there that night, and early next morning we sat off by land. We had nothing to burden us, not even provisions or money, consequently had nothing to hinder us from proving our adroitness at travelling. We walked that day about forty miles, and stopped at night at a small snug house in the state of New Jersey. We were obliged to take the soft side of the floor for our lodging, having no blankets or any other kind of bedding. I was tired, and could have slept almost anywhere, had I been undisturbed. But there was, belonging to the house, a likely young huzzy. She, with her parents, composed the whole family. At least they were all I saw. They all went to rest in a back room, and we were left to sleep in the outer room. I had hardly fallen asleep, when someone came bawling at the door. The girl, I suppose, knowing who it was, got up and came blundering over the chairs, through the room where I was lying, making as much noise as a thunderstorm. She at length got to the door and talked some time with the man, when she came rattling back and went muttering to her bed. I had but just dropped asleep again, when the same jockey, I supposed, as it appeared to be the same voice, came back and began his yelping again. The poor girl had to scratch open her eyes once more, and come through our territories, making as much confusion as at the first time. They talked pretty loud for nearly an hour, which kept us awake all the time they were there. I wished he had taken an opportunity to visit his miss when I was farther off. She came in again and went to her room, growling like an old bear. "'What did he want?' said the mother to her. "'He wanted me to go with him to blank. she mentioned some place. "'Why did you not go?' said the good woman. "'I should look well going with him at this time of night, I should. "'So I should,' said she. "'Before I could get to sleep again it was daybreak. "'I wished the girl had been asleep and her wooer gagged "'before I had seen or heard either of them. "'As soon as the day dawned, the man of the house came into the room where we were "'and took a large jug that had stood all night just at my head "'and poured out a morning stimulator for himself "'and then put the jug into a closet.' I was sorry I did not know it was so near me, that I might have taken a comforter for the trouble they had caused me. End of chapter 8, part 1